You're listening to the Economics Review Podcast with your host, Adi Golcha. From Congress to Wall Street and finance to philosophy, tune into the Economics Review to hear from world-leading experts on current events and cutting-edge research. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome back to the Economics Review. Our guest today is a senior lecturer in political theory in the Department of Political Economy at King's College London. Holding a PhD in history from the University of Cambridge, his work focuses on the history of political thought and contemporary political theory. His latest book is titled Adam Smith Reconsidered, History, Liberty, and the Foundations of Modern Politics. It's my great pleasure to welcome to the show, Dr. Paul Sager. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. Firstly, I'd like to start off by asking you to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your background and how you got into history and political theory. Well, I'm from the northwest of England, um, and I ended up sort of getting into the history of political thought and the history of economic thought by accident. Uh, I found myself doing politics, philosophy and economics at the University of Oxford in the uh, mid sort of, uh, well, around 2005, 2008, and um, just found that I was more and more drawn to historical understandings of politics. Um, I was interested in political theory and philosophy, but I I was frustrated that a lot of the approaches that were dominant around me at that point were very ahistorical. They were concerned with trying to answer questions about justice and legitimacy and inequality through purely argumentative means, simply through using the tools of philosophy. And I found this that it didn't work. I, I thought that this was a very narrow way of looking at things. And so I started drifting more and more towards looking at the historical study of political ideas and that often meant looking at historical figures who themselves were more interested in historical, sociological, political contexts, not just sort of pure philosophical arguments. And this ended up with me moving on to do a master's degree in London and then eventually a PhD at the University of Cambridge, where I studied predominantly initially the moral and political philosophy of David Hume, one of the sort of great founding figures of political economy and, of course, a close friend of uh, Adam Smith, who's now widely regarded as one of the founding figures of what we now think of as economic theory. Um, and from there, I just kind of got deeper and deeper into things and wrote my first book um, off the back of my PhD, which is called The Opinion of Mankind, Sociability and the Theory of the State from Hobbes to Smith. And that's an attempt to reconstruct early modern debates about what the state is, um, why we have a state at all, why we need one, why can't human beings get on without the need for coercive laws and apparatuses of government. And then eventually having written that book, the final chapter of which was on Adam Smith, I realized that there was an awful lot more to say about Adam Smith. Um, and then that became the second book, the one that you've just mentioned. And the quest really with that book was to, to go back and unpack what I took to be a lot of the misunderstood and neglected aspects of Smith's thought, which are in particular understanding Smith as a political thinker, uh, that he's mostly been viewed as a moral thinker by more recent scholarship, and of course, previously to that, an economic thinker. And my 
sense has always been that whilst of course he has interesting things to say about morality and it certainly has interesting things to say about what we would now call economics although he himself didn't have that word or concept available to him i think that he has even more interesting things to say about politics and that in fact it's his political positions that tie together what makes his moral views and his economic views interesting so the latest book has really been an, an attempt to to not just understand adam smith better but to really make good on that suspicion that i had many years ago that if we want to think about politics and political philosophy in its most effective form we need to integrate it with other areas of human study in particular with the economy but also with history and sociology and psychology and adam smith is just an absolute master of this he's just one of the all-time greats in combining different aspects of human intellectual endeavor into a unified picture of how to understand the world and so really the latest book is partly an attempt to try and argue that people haven't understood smith correctly and that when you do understand him correctly he's even more interesting than people have realized but also i think smith is a kind of model i think he's a model for us for how we can think better about politics today he shows us how to take it seriously and get the best results so really this book is a culmination of both my own personal interests over the last sort of 15 20 years and also an attempt to um to to offer a new reading of a of a major historical figure if you are a professional looking at the european startup scene germany is a place you cannot miss Fortunately for you, there is startuprad.eo, the authority on German startups. This English-only podcast brings you fresh interviews each week. Most likely, you have never heard or read anything on these startups before in English, but you will in the future. Be ahead of the curve and subscribe to startuprad.eo podcast or check for the startuprad.eo internet radio station. Check your Alexa for the startuprad.eo skill as well. Okay, hey, um so today I want to begin by getting your take on the Des Adam Smith problem um which you address at length in the introduction of the book. So you write quote a central aim of this book is to challenge the way of thinking from the ground up. It is my contention that Smith did not operate from the basic assumption underlying the real Des Adam Smith problem that is that societies which rely heavily on markets are presumptively normatively problematic and must either be criticized or qualifiedly defended on ethical grounds pertaining to concerns about self-interest vanity status competition consumerism and so forth so for our viewers who aren't familiar can you please explain um a bit about the way the Des Adam Smith problem is conventionally understood and explain how your contention differs from this Sure. So the classic Das Adam Smith problem arose in the sort of late 19th early 20th century and it's generally associated with German scholars um who were sort of excavating the foundations of political economy and history. That's why it's called Das Adam Smith problem. And the original supposition is that Smith wrote two books, one called The Theory of Moral Sentiments, which is a hugely successful in his lifetime but is now really only to preserve for specialist scholars, and The Wealth of Nations, which is the big book about economics which everybody's heard of although not that many people have actually read. and the original supposition of some of these german scholars is well hang on the first book is about benevolence it's about being a nice person and being moral and good but the second book is about selfishness because it's about markets and competition and economic processes and how could this guy have written both books how could he on the one hand have written a book about how we need to be moral and good and another book about how you know everything is selfishness and self-interest um 
And that's a kind of crude rendering of it. And it's not entirely clear that anybody really believed in quite such a crude form. But the idea was nonetheless, look, there's a problem here. You know, how do we explain how he could write one book and then, you know, 20 years later write the other book? The original formulation of the problem is kind of now widely dispelled because it's understood that actually TMS or theory of moral sentiments isn't simply about benevolence. It's about sympathy, which is a technical term for Smith about sharing each other's sentiments. It's a book about moral psychology, and it's very much interested in the individual level of moral psychology. Wealth of Nations is a book about systems. It's a book about the big picture, what we would maybe now call macroeconomic processes and how market, well, the interaction of micro and macroeconomic processes and how markets operate in the aggregate and how what they don't rely on is general or benevolence or altruism, what they rely on is self-interest. But self-interest isn't the same thing as selfishness, and self-interest is perfectly compatible with sympathy on Smith's technical understanding. So there's a sense in which the uh, the original Das Adam Smith problem is just founded on a kind of mistake about what the two books are arguing. One is about the individual level, one's about systems, one is about individual moral psychology, the other is about the motivations that apply in markets, and there's no inherent contradiction between them. And we certainly know that Smith didn't somehow change his mind between writing the two books, which was the original solution to Das Adam Smith problem. Oh, he went to France between writing Theory of Moral Sentiments, Wealth of Nations, met this guy, Helvetius, who convinced him of the importance of self-interest, and then he wrote The Wealth of Nations and he changed his mind. Well, no one believes that anymore. It's pretty clear that's not true. There's the biographical and evidence from the books is, is, is clear that that never happened. Um, so it's sort of, in a way, the Das Adam Smith problem is you know, solved. Um, and most works on Adam Smith nowadays will open by saying, oh, there used to be this thing called the Das Adam Smith problem, but we've all moved beyond that now. We have a much more sophisticated view of Adam Smith. Isn't that great? And that's true to a certain extent. But there's a sense in which I think the the Das Adam Smith problem was always actually about something more fundamental and more profound than just whether Smith changed his mind or whether, whether he wrote two incompatible books. And the worry underlying it was isn't there something fundamentally morally compromised about markets? Aren't markets inherently morally suspicious because they rely on people's self-interest, not their generosity? They apply to a realm of competitive often zero sum, but sometimes not if things are going well, uh, competition between individuals who are trying to achieve their own ends at the expense of others quite often. And crucially, isn't it the case that if we are acting self-interestedly, then not only do we behave in ways towards other people which are at the very least amoral or less than moral, but if we do that and in the process create ginormous inequalities, which is basically the outcome of market processes, they, they create wealth, they increase the sum aggregate of human wealth, but the trade-off is that is that they also create divisions between rich and poor. And the thought here is, well, hang on a minute, how could Adam Smith have signed off on that? If this guy is a serious moral philosopher, which he is, because we've got the theory of moral sentiments to prove it, how could he also have thought that there was nothing wrong with what people have tended to refer to as commercial society, right? or what we would probably now refer to as capitalism? And so the real Das Adam Smith problem, in my view, is a, is a more pressing one. It's the, the fundamental question of whether market societies are fundamentally morally compromised. And if you think about the Das Adam Smith problem in that way, then it's still very much alive in the specialist scholarship on Smith and indeed in society more generally. This is an anxiety that 
is part of the contemporary culture wars. And right? it's part of the division between left and right. And my suggestion here is that that Das Adam Smith problem is still very much alive and kicking in Smith scholarship and in, in the world today. But actually, it's a mistake when applied to Smith, because Smith is actually himself really rather radical in that he just rejects the premises of what I call the real Das Adam Smith problem. The idea that there's something morally compromised about market societies, that they are presumptively on the back foot, morally speaking, that they, they need to be apologized for or defended or they're, they're inevitably going to come out as somehow grubby or compromised. And I think Smith just does not agree with that. And this makes him extremely unusual in the history of moral and political thought in the West. The default position going you know, right back to Plato, beyond it, before Plato, is that there's something intrinsically suspect about market transactions. There's something sus intrinsically suspect about self-interested motives, and that the products of these things are going to be things that we should, as a society, be suspicious of and at best treat as a kind of evil to be tolerated rather than as something inherently neutral. Whereas I think Smith has a very different view. And so the, the starting point of the book is to articulate why I think that Smith doesn't believe in the the so-called real Das Adam Smith problem. It doesn't apply to him. It's a non-problem. And in turn, when we see his reasons for thinking this, his arguments, we might come to believe that it's a non-problem and we might ourselves move beyond it in the way that I think he did. Okay. So I think that's a, a really uh, coherent foundational shift that, that really sets up the conversation really well. Um, so, so thank you for explaining that so thoroughly. Um, so the next thing I wanted to discuss is one of the central aims of your book, which is to show that, quote, Hitherto um, underappreciated extent to which Smith was more centrally concerned with the political rather than the moral dangers that societies were vulnerable to, um, which also um, highlights what he took um, to be their often underappreciated or unrecognized achievements. So for myself, and I'm sure many of our listeners, when we think of Smith's ideas surrounding politics and the role of government, um, the famous quote from The Wealth of Nations comes to mind that states, quote, little else is requisite to carry a nation to the highest degree of opulence, but peace, easy taxes, and a tolerable administration of justice, all the rest being brought about by the natural course of things. So Dr. Sager, can you please tell us a bit more about the political dangers that you can that you contend Smith was concerned with and why you believe that that they were more central to his work than the moral dangers. Absolutely. So a, a big trend in the recent Smith scholarship is to be say that, look, Smith is really worried about moral corruption, that because we pursue economic goods, and particularly we pursue them quite often for status, um, not simply because we need them, you know, if all you were interested in was feeding yourself and clothing yourself, you wouldn't really need that much. But of course, we're all interested in far more than that. We're interested in luxuries. In the 18th century, that means anything above bare necessity. And it's a morally loaded word in the 18th century, though to us, it, it's quite neutral sounding. And what we're interested in is luxuries, not just because they make us feel good, but because they make us feel good by lording it over other people. And Smith has a famous quote in the 
last edition of his theory of moral sentiments that the uh, the disposition to admire and envy and worship the rich and powerful is the greatest and most universal cause of the corruption of our moral sentiments and this has been taken by many people to, uh, as as resonating with worries that we have in our own age about consumer capitalism the idea that we're all trapped in this rat race of attempting to get a new car and you know new trainers or sneakers as you guys would say in America you know uh, more and more status goods because we think, oh, if we have more goods, we'll finally be happy. But of course, it never ends. Uh, and so there's a worry here that we we degrade our moral relationships with each other by ending up in cycles of esteem and status competition powered through market activity using the things we buy through market activity as status goods. So that's been the dominant reading. And it's, it's one that is very clearly there in Smith's great contemporary, Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Uh, Rousseau most definitely worries about these kinds of things. And the sort of general line in recent times has been said, well, well Smith worries about them too. But he just thinks that on balance, uh, it's not so bad because although markets do have these horrible effects of corrupting our moral sentiments, they also make us better off than we'd otherwise be. They have a great impact in poverty alleviation. They eventually lead to more ordered and stable government. And so that's just the price you have to pay for living in a market society. So it kind of accepts the Rousseau, Rousseau uh, charge, but attempts to kind of soften its edges. And I think that's wrong. I think that's not what Smith is saying at all. I think that Smith is disagreeing with people like Rousseau and con contemporary critics of markets from the left that you'll find today. And Smith thinks it's not actually status competition that drives most of our economic activity. And this is one of the big claims that I make in the book is that Smith has been systematically misread about the motivations for market consumption. Yes, he knows that we compete for status in some situations. He's not blind to the fact that we care about what other people think of us. In fact, he makes that a central point of his own moral psychology. But what he does emphasize is the vast bulk of market activity is not actually about status competition. It's about this weird propensity that we all have to always want more stuff because we think the stuff will make us happy, even though it doesn't. And it's the happiness isn't about other people respecting us or other people looking up to us. So here's an example from my own life. Right? Sitting in front of me, I have a MacBook, an iPhone. In the other room, there's an iPad. In my office at work, I've got a, a desktop Mac. I've just got work to replace my MacBook Air because it, it's, it's getting a bit old. I'd like a new one, right? Why do I buy these things? Extremely expensive, right? Is it for status? Well, not really because nobody, everybody I know either has one or doesn't care. I don't want these things because of the status they'll bring me. I want them because there's some part of my brain that fixates on what Smith calls the, the anticipated utility. Right? That once I have this new MacBook, which I'm picking up tomorrow and I'm awfully excited about, then I'll have all this processing power and I'll be able to do photo editing and video editing and I'll be able to uh, store all my data. And of course, I won't actually use any of these tools, but the idea of being able to use them is attractive to me. Now, what happens when I pick up that MacBook tomorrow? Well, I'll play with it for about an hour and then the novelty will wear off. 
And I won't suddenly find that I've become happy through this latest purchase. I'll just go back to my baseline before and start fantasizing about the next thing I want to buy. Today, I've been looking at inflatable kayaks so that I can go fishing uh, off the rocks in the sea on the south of England, right? Do I need an inflatable kayak? No, I could walk off the rocks and, and just you know uh, catch fish from the shore. But I've now fixated on this idea of an inflatable kayak. And they're extremely expensive, but I know that within the next year, I'll own one. <laughs> and this is this process that Smith is talking about. The most of our consumption operates in this mode, that we buy things because we think they'll make us happy. And of course, the moment that we get them, they don't. So we buy more things. And this can be a real problem, he thinks. This can be a deception. He, he describes it as a deception. And he thinks in extreme cases, it can make us really unhappy. People who spend their entire lives just trying to accumulate more material stuff and neglect their friendships, neglect their family, neglect their human connections with other people, realize on their deathbeds that they've wasted their lives. Now, most of us aren't that extreme, but most of us have something like that going on. And Smith thinks that's what powers market activity. And on the whole, you know, it's a weird human quirk. It's a weird quirk of our rationality, but it's ultimately morally neutral. He thinks you, know, you don't want it to go too far or it'll ruin your life. But most people keep it under control and most people keep things in check. And on balance, this deception is a good thing. Because if we didn't have it, if we didn't constantly strive for more stuff, then we would never have developed beyond the, 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 the level of very, very, very primitive subsistence existences way back tens of thousands of years ago in our history. So it's this process of always striving for more, being weirdly obsessed with the means of utility, even though the means ever actually deliver the happiness we're expecting from them, that, as he says, causes the great fields to be watered with the sweat of mankind, to raise up enormous um, uh, industrial, farming, economic opportunities that basically generate enormous, unprecedented unprecedented amounts of economic flourishing. Now, the flip side of that is they do generate inequality, and that's a problem, Smith thinks, for various reasons. But that inequality is on balance kind of justified because the poor are now much vastly better off than they would have been if we'd stayed in an undeveloped condition. So that's the first part of my sort of big claim. Smith's view of markets is not fundamentally one where morality and moral corruption is playing a significant part. He doesn't have the same framework as Jean-Jacques Rousseau. And most scholars have erred by just assuming he's making the same argument as Rousseau, but softening the edges. I think that's wrong. The flip side of it is, well, then is Smith just blasé? about markets and market societies? Is Smith just indifferent about these effects? And the answer is most certainly not. He really isn't. On the one hand, he really worries about the plight of the poor in modern conditions. And in particular, he worries about the way that they are going to be, on the one hand, subjected to brutality and oppression and exploitation by the rich. And he's absolutely clear that the one constant in all human history is that if left to their own devices, the rich will oppress and exploit the poor, and they need to be protected from the rich accordingly. He's consistent about this in all his works. And the second is that the poor will be forced into menial, degrading, mentally mutilating, boring, repetitive labor that will inhibit their abilities to develop their own 
personal flourishing. So, you know, if you spend 12 hours a day in a pin factory, simply making pin shafts in order to just about scrape enough coins together to feed your child and yourself at the end of the week, and, you know, and that's all you do for your life, then that is a brutalizing degradation of human existence. And Smith is very, very worried about both of these two phenomena. And for him, the real political danger lies in the fact that not only do the rich always attempt to exploit and subjugate the poor whenever they can, but the rich are particularly good at manipulating laws and manipulating politicians to do their bidding for them. One of Smith's greatest warnings is that if you listen to what he calls the merchants and monopolists, and today we call them uh, the fat cats of industry, they will tell you that their interests are the same as the interests of the whole country. But what's good for them is good for everybody else. So today in the UK, with Boris Johnson having just survived the no confidence vote, we've got all the leaders of industry saying, Boris, you must cut taxes. You must cut taxes immediately. That's what the country needs. What they're really saying is you're weak right now and you need our backing. So we're going to leverage this to get you to do things that we want and present it as though it's in the interest of the whole country. Now, whether low taxes are or not interest of the British economy right now isn't is an open question. I'm not saying it's necessarily false. What I'm saying Smith is saying is be very, very careful when people like that start coming to the fore and making demands. Because what the merchants and monopolists are interested in is their own back um, their own bottom line and their own pockets. And they'll tell you they're doing stuff in the interest of everybody else, but they're not really. And if you're not careful, they will manipulate all of the laws of the land, all of its trade policies, all of its apparatus for economic development to rig the game in their own favor and screw everybody else. So that quote that you started with about all that's needed is for it sounds like a modern libertarian statement, right? All that's needed is for government to withdraw and let the economy just do its magic. The full context of that quote is Smith is saying, first, you need to take the laws and the trade policies back out of the hands of the merchants and monopolists because they've constructed these elaborate systems of drawbacks and monopolies and rigged markets whose sole purpose is to screw over ordinary people, screw over their competitors, screw over the national coffers and get as much as they can for themselves. So Smith's, in a sense, libertarian statement of the government needs to get out of the way. What he actually means is the government, which is currently being controlled by the merchants and monopolists to their sectional advantage, needs to get out of the way. So the picture is much more complicated than simply a kind of 1980s Chicago, Milton Friedman-esque libertarianism of the 18th century. Smith is actually quite clear that the government is going to have to do a lot of proactive things in order to secure this condition of ease where people just follow their natural sentiments. And it's going to have to constantly be vigilant and constantly fight against the fact that the economy will not remain uh, what we would call free market because the people who most hate free markets are the merchants and monopolists, the fat cats, who don't want market competition. What they want is rigged monopolies backed by state power. So Smith's position is really quite complicated, but his ultimate message is, if you care about a free society, what you really have to worry about is it's downward, it's, it's, it's political corruption from the inside by those people who are more rich, more powerful, and more able to dominate politicians and bend laws to their will. And if left to their own devices, will do exactly that. 
All right. Um, but then isn't that sort of a, a contention that applies to everyone in, in the market then? Like, for example, the, the merchants and the monopolists, um, they pursue their own interests. Essentially, they do what they can to maximize their own wealth and maximize their own prosperity, um, to make as much money as they can. Um, isn't that, isn't that um, sort of self-interest and assumption that we can make for all actors in an economy? So in, in what way are those um, th those different, like how are they exempt from from the the sort of invisible hand that that makes sure that everybody pursuing their own self interest makes society better off overall? Great. So, so Smith's point is exactly that they're not different, right? Everyone's the same, but everyone therefore needs to play by the same rules. And what we need, therefore, and this is absolutely crucial to Smith's vision, is the rule of law. The rule of law is absolutely foundational. So that when the merchants and monopolists go into the marketplace competing for their own self-interests, they're going to have to play by a set of rules which constrain their activities, constrain the way they're able to manipulate prices or which markets people can and can't enter. So it's not an appeal to say, oh, you know, they're being selfish and everyone else is being, you know, benevolent or whatever. No, everybody entering the market is is entering, you know, in self-interested terms to try and promote their own, ultimately their own individual well-being. But the point that Smith wants you to recognize is because people enter the market with different levels of power, the market itself is vulnerable to not functioning as a market when some strong individual actors get hold of it and prevent competition that is required for it to be a market. So what he says is if you let the merchants and monopolists dictate the rules, all they'll do is shut down the process whereby fair competition could be used against them. And they'll produce shoddy goods that will screw over ordinary consumers whilst rigging the system to prevent anybody coming in and offering an alternative. And what you need to prevent this is a system of laws, which everybody has to apply and live by equally, whether they are the prime minister a captain of industry or the lowliest peasant in Devon. And Smith's position is once you achieve that, then you can achieve what he calls modern freedom. Because once you achieve that, you, you provide the security and property and personal bodily integrity. That means that no matter how poor you are, you don't have to fear somebody coming in and taking your stuff away because they've got more force than you. And he thinks that for the vast majority of human history, that's what happened. As soon as one person or a small group of people got more physical force than other people, they just took things from the others and they didn't allow markets. The merchants, he thinks, because they're rich and powerful, want to behave like that. So you have to constrain them. And the way you constrain them is by forcing them to operate under the rule of law. And if you have the rule of law, then you can have freedom. But for Smith, it's absolutely crucial to understand that the rule of law does not come into being spontaneously. It does not come into being simply because it's in everybody's benefit. It's not in everybody's benefit. It's in the benefit of ordinary people who are going to be dominated and oppressed if they don't have it. So the rule of law needs to be imposed. So you need a strong state which is centrally able to do these things. And if any of your readers are thinking, wow, this sounds an awful lot like Hayek in the Constitution of Liberty, that's not a coincidence. Hayek read Smith. 
Hayek took these points from Smith and understood very, very clearly that there was a paradox, which is that if you wanted free markets and economic competition, the state simultaneously had to be strong and weak. It had to be strong in order to create the conditions, the rule of law and freedom that allowed market competition, but it also had to be weak in the sense of not getting involved or overly involved in those competitive processes. And and not giving in to the the nefarious influence of powerful elites who wanted to use the state for their own advantage. So did Smith then provide any mechanisms for how we come about um, establishing a society with uh, a strong rule of law, um, as opposed to it just being merely a cultural shift or, or a change in attitudes? Um, for example, there are plenty of, of countries around the world which have laws on the books, but those laws are radically or arbitrarily enforced so that they don't apply to those in power or there aren't effective or the laws do not manage to effectively hold um, political leaders accountable. Um, and so did Smith offer any any sort of mechanisms for how you set up a society in which you you maintain rule of law? Um, like, for example, the founding father set up a system of checks and balances. Did, did um, Adam Smith have anything to say in that in, in that regard? Fantastic. So this is where Smith gets really interesting for me, who's interested in the history of these things, because Smith thinks his starting position is exactly yours. Look how many parts of the world don't have the rule of law. Look how many parts of the world, not just now, but throughout human history, have not been organized for the collective prosperity of all, but have been organized for the narrow prosperity of whoever's sitting at the top of the pyramid. And he thinks the default norm in all of human history has not been freedom and opulence. It's been oppression and domination and the, 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 the monopolization of wealth by a tiny elite. And so the question is, well, how did some, some parts of the world in his day, some, you know, a few corners of Western Europe, how did they manage to do this? And Smith thinks it's basically a huge accident of history. That it's a long, uh, you know, it took thousands of years from the fall of the Roman Empire through the dark night of feudal Europe, where for thousands of years things were just it's basically a slave societies based on on hierarchical oppression and exploitation by kings and barons who claimed a divine right, but were nothing other than warlords who just exploited their populations. And Smith's question is, well, how did that end up with you know the the world of his day, the world of the rule of law, and markets generating wealth and prosperity and freedom. And his, his answer is a very long and complicated one. And he says it's basically an accident. <laughs> it's basically an accident of history. And the point is that once you find yourself having inherited that accident, you should be very, very careful about how you preserve it. So there's two different questions. There's one question is, how does the rule of law come about? And then the second question is, okay, if it has come about, how do you keep it? In the first instance, he says, you know, you, we should be extremely grateful that it did come about for us and we should appreciate that it was a big accident and we're very lucky to have it. And we should also appreciate that we've abused our capacity for the rule of law by going to other countries and not expending the, um, expanding the benefits to them. And he points to the appalling treatment of India at the hands of the British and the East India Company, where the rule of law was denied to the Indians and where the East India Company was the worst combination of an oppressive sovereign and an extractive mercantile company. And he he's utterly damning about the 
inability of Western nations, and in particular Britain, to expand the benefits that they that they were enjoying to other peoples who they simply exploited. And there's, of course, another story about the Western Empire and the the wholesale destruction of the indigenous people, which Smith is also deeply condemnatory of. But then the question is, okay, so, but, but here at home, we've managed to stumble into having the rule of law, which is basically a historical accident. Okay, so what can we do about it? Well, one thing we can do is, is value it, realise that the conventions around checks and balances, the conventions around people leaving office peacefully, around everybody having to obey the law, no matter how rich and how powerful they are, are incredibly important. And that we're incredibly lucky to have had these things. And if we undermine them through various means that your your American readers may be particularly familiar with at the moment, but my own country is dallying with some of these things as well. If we undermine these things, we do so at our peril because they, if they're destroyed, they may not come back quickly. And what we need to understand is that because these things are historical accidents and because they rely a lot on conventions and precedent, we need to be cautious about reform. We need to be cautious about short-term uh, expediences where we do without the rule of law because we think that it will make us better off in the short term. We need to be very, very careful about those things. However, However, this does not make Smith simply a reactionary conservative. This does not make Smith somebody who thinks that, you know, the status quo is always good and we must always simply avoid tinkering and we must just defer to custom and tradition because he recognizes that times change. And sometimes you do need reform because sometimes the system is broken or not working, or if it doesn't reform itself, then malicious actors are going to take hold of it from the inside or overthrow it from without. And Smith refers to this as the great paradox of the political patriot. Here, patriotism in its 18th century sense is simply somebody who cares about their fellow countrymen and wants the best for everybody, which is that you need to make judgments about when to engage in political reform and when to try and change the system versus when to stick to the old system. And Smith's point is it's never easy to tell whether what's required is reform or conservation. And one side is never always right and one side is never always wrong. And we've always got to be really careful about getting drawn into a certain spirit of revolutionary change where we think that we've got a plan, we can apply our plan, and this will make the whole world better. Because inevitably, the real world is so complicated and individual people in that world have so many disparate ideas and motivations and ambitions and ideologies, but no plan ever survives contact with reality. And so the, the paradox of the politician is they need to respect the importance of the rule of law. They need to inspect, uh, respect the importance of, of customs and institutions that preserve our freedom over the long term, whilst also recognizing that to survive, those customs and institutions will sometimes have to change. And one of the hardest things to do in politics is getting that balance right, especially when you're surrounded by mercantile elites who are constantly whispering in your ear that what you really need to do is give them a tax break or give them a monopoly. And so Smith's picture of politics is ultimately quite a bleak one. It's one where the stakes are very, very high. You don't want to end up like the poor Indians oppressed by an outsider like Britain with no rule of law. You don't want to go back to the position where for thousands of years, human societies were just ravaged by outsiders, um, by, by what he described as shepherding clans descending from the Mongol steppe in their thousands to slaughter and pillage you. We don't want to end up back in that situation, but 
the choices we have to make are always going to be extremely difficult because the pressures we're under and the lack of information that we possess at any given moment means we can never be quite sure whether this is a moment where we need to be reforming or this is a moment where we need to be conserving. And that's why I'm very hostile to attempts to claim Smith for either the left or the right. I'm afraid that in many ways, uh, Smith is the original centrist dad. But as I get older, I think that I'm also a centrist dad. So I'm kind of okay with that. Okay. Um, and so that's where this brings me, um, especially I think with your response to a, an interesting bit of the book, um, which is something I didn't know and frankly didn't expect, um, which is um, you, you talk about how the, the way he was not a Republican instead favored a favored constitutional monarchies as being the way of the future. So to me um, personally, I think it's it's surprising to think of the person that we've always been taught of as being one of the primary influences on the founding fathers, um, that he didn't view democracy um, or a Republican form of government as being a necessary precondition for, for this sort of um, liberty and for organizing, or, or not only just liberty, but for um, rule of law and, and making sure that not only do we not tear down um, our, our institutions, um, but also that we don't um, preserve them when times have changed, right? That, that we can manage to effectively change with the times um, without descending into this sort of backward um, scenario that you mentioned. And so it it, I, it is surprising to me, and it's something I wanted to ask you about, is how, how did he then reconcile that with um, a monarch or, or a constitutional monarch being the best placed to make those decisions? as opposed to uh, people in democracy or yeah. republic. So part of the part of the question, the issue here is simply one of historical timing. So do remember that if you read the Federalist Papers, uh, the Federalists are absolutely clear that they are not founding a democracy in America. They are finding they are they are finding what they call a republican empire. Right? The emergence of democracy as as the only legitimate form of government is really a nineteenth century phenomenon. Not not many people in the eighteenth century thought that democracy was going to be the, uh, uh, the 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 one future form of legitimate government. And republicanism in the eighteenth century doesn't necessarily mean democracy. It means a self governing independent city state. And that could be an aristocracy that does the self-governing. So the terms republic, democracy, they have shifted in meaning since the 18th century. And the American embracing of democracy, and indeed the European and British embracing, post-date Smith, right? It, it, and that's the, 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 because of the emergence of representative democracy, the idea that we could have voting for representatives, and we call that democracy. Prior to around the 19th century, democracy meant literally you went and were part of the government. You, know, you went to the, the assembly and voted and spoke and sat on the courts, right? It was a more Athenian vision of democracy. So partly there's just a shift there. But partly it's because Smith thinks that republicanism is associated with two things in particular in his 18th century understanding. One, small city-states, probably in the ancient world, maybe in little bits of Italy, maybe in little bits of the Netherlands, but small places that are on their way out because they're not going to be able to militarily and economically compete with the large modern states of Europe. And secondly, they are slave states. The historical precedent, um, uh, the historical, sorry, the historical economic necessities of republican organization were a group of male citizens, always male citizens, maybe only the upper classes, 
perhaps perhaps all of them, you know, in weird places like ancient Athens for a hundred years, but mostly uh, well-to-do aristocratic males were going to rule themselves collectively. Well, how could they do that? Because they had thousands of slaves who were doing the work for them. So they had the, the wealth and the leisure time to spend their lives as professional politicians. And Smith thought this was abhorrent. Smith thought that any political economic system that was founded on slavery was simply illegitimate. He was a implacable opponent of slavery, both on its moral grounds, because he thought it was just barbaric and inhumane and plainly immoral, but also economically. He thought it was a grossly inefficient form of organizing an economy, which would eventually be outcompeted and would, would hopefully die out, at least in those parts of the world which were brave enough to take that step. Though he also was quite skeptical about the abolition of slavery because he thought the human desire to dominate other people was so powerful that often men would prefer the work of slaves, even though it was less economically beneficial to them because having slaves made them feel powerful and made them feel good. So for Smith, republicanism isn't an option in for large modern states anymore because one, he doesn't yet have an understanding of representative democracy. So Democracy of, you know, how could you have democracy in a country like France with 20 million people? They can't all go and vote uh, in the assembly in person. And there isn't any understanding of representative democracy. And so democracy in that sense isn't on the cards for him. And republicanism in the old sense of a slave-based economy in a small city state is unattractive to him on moral grounds. He also thinks that politically speaking, uh, these places are, are finished because the large neighbors are just going to conquer them. <laughs> and that's what happened. If you look at what happened in Italy and France and um, these places just end up being conquered by their neighbors and subsumed into larger states. Um, and fundamentally, uh, for Smith, the big advantage of the what he called constitutional monarchies was that they had the rule of law, that the kings and queens had been brought under control. The things like the English Civil War and that would eventually, through a very bloody and protracted process in France, ultimately issue in constitutional rule. And that what he called constitutional monarchy would eventually be what we call liberal states. States where everybody, even the person at the top of the pyramid, is subject to the same rules and that parliaments and legislatures control the political process. And he thought that that was infinitely preferable because that provided a stability for a long-term economic improvement, but also crucially freedom for everybody equally. And that that was vastly preferable to a small slave-based Republican organization. Just to go back quickly to what you're saying about the founding fathers, what's really interesting about the founding fathers is that they flip the categories of Republican assumptions um, from earlier political theory. They say, no, a republic can be large, right? which is a radical break in the history of political thought. They say, no, people like Smith and Montesquieu and other theorists of republics who thought republics had to be small were wrong. We can have a big republic. We can have a republic that goes from the Atlantic to the Pacific. How? Well, traditionally, republics, everyone had to participate. Well, what's our innovation going to be? Our innovation is going to be representation. And so America is an odd place in, in Smithian understandings of politics because America is a place that calls itself a republic. Is it, you, know, you guys don't have a king anymore. You got rid of ours. Uh, you know, so in a sense, you are republican because you don't have a king. But in Smith's understanding, America is a constitutional monarchy. The president is an elected monarch. The country has the rule of law, has a legislative system. 
and is not and is no longer a slave-based economy. And of course, guys had to fight a brutal civil war to 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 move past that particular uh, configuration. But on Smith's terms, America by the 19th century simply became a constitutional monarchy. It's just you call your monarch a president and you kick him out every four or eight years. Okay. Yeah, I think there is a, a lot of really important um, contextualizing that needs to be done when. Like you said, when we use the terms or terms like democracy and republic and monarchy um, that meant very different things to people in the 18th century than they do to us now. Um, so, yeah, I think yep. I think that's that's really interesting. And I mean, I'd love to keep on going, uh, but I think we've run 45 minutes, so I'll, I'll leave it at that. Um, thank you so much for joining us on the show, Dr. Sager. It's It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Well, thanks very much for inviting me. And, uh, you know, we, I, like you said, we could talk for hours and hours more. Um, so uh, I, thanks for such a rich and, and stimulating conversation. Okay. Dr. Sager's new um, incredible book, uh, Adam Smith Reconsidered, is available on Amazon. I definitely recommend you all check it out. It's absolutely worth the read. Um, thank you, everyone, for listening to the Economics Review. And as always, we'll be back soon with the latest.